Hey, everybody. Happy Friday. You are listening to Alumless. Glad to have you with us. I am Ryan Catherwood. The gentleman sitting opposite me, the screen, oh, listener, is Chris Marshall. Chris is the founder and CEO of CMAC, and Alumless is a CMAC production. Every other week, we try to bring you a show about engagement strategies and educational advancement. Uh, as you know, we have a special guest on each show, and we have all different themes with our guests, and we record a bonus 30 minutes that you can listen to on our podcast version of Alumless. So if you are enjoying these conversations, be sure to check out the podcast as well and hear more from our guests each week. But I don't, for most people, Chris, I think 30 minutes is just about all they can handle. You know, it's, it's, of us it's live. a lot. <laughs> it's a lot hearing from us for that kind of time. Uh, today's Friday, May 12th. Uh, we are live, of course. We have a great special guest, Thomas MacArthur, Associate Vice President, Alumni Engagement and Annual Giving at the University of Buffalo. So if you've got any questions for Thomas, we're going to bring them out in a little bit. Be sure to pose them in the chat. Uh, we can uh, actually, it's not the chat, it's the LinkedIn comments, right? So if you post it in the LinkedIn event comments, uh, we can see it here in our interface, so be sure to do that. And Matthew Winston fun. joining in from SUNY Binghamton. What's up, Matthew? <laughs> Good to see you. Glad for glad to have Matthew joining us, uh, Matt Winston. And uh, all right, so you are not at your desk in the uh, Casa Marshall. You mm -hmm. are traveling. You're on the road at a lovely hotel in Brunswick, Maine. What are you doing? <laughs> uh, Living a life in the Fairfield Inn, the Road Warrior. I'm at Bowdoin College today. We've been working with them for about a year and a half uh, on several projects. We did a review last year, presented that about a year ago, and then uh, went into a strategic planning process, and we're presenting that to the Board of Trustees today. So they had a very uh, engaged board of trustees on this process. In fact, they, they not only did the board, but alumni board, all these different volunteers. They had 62 volunteers through 11 different focus groups provide feedback on the strategic plan. So we have a lot of input to share and we're going to go over that today. This One of the most engaged alumni populations yeah. there is. I think we had, we had Dan Olds on the show yep. uh, a few episodes back. They, they run a 40 to 50% giving rate. You know, they've been even higher yeah. years ago. Um, and their engagement rate is, you know, in the 50, 60% range. And they had a goal for their campaign of 85% of their alumni engaged over the life of the campaign. And they're going to hit it. So yeah, they're engaged. It's really cool. And, and so, you know, we, we wanted to talk a little bit about culture changes uh, as a way to frame up today's episode. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you've worked at a, you've led a couple of alumni shops at Lehigh and then at Cornell. And I have to imagine at both of those leadership roles, there were culture change things, initiatives, right? There were, there was, you were seeing like a need for some change and you're like, all right, I got to shift to culture. Like when you reflect back on those two roles and, and what you were trying to accomplish and sort of the culture shift, what were you doing? What were you thinking about? I will, I will tell you two quick stories because I want to get Thomas out here, but uh, one at Lehigh, I inherited a team that's been doing good, good people doing good work for a long time. But as you walked into the suite of offices, there was a bank of file cabinets filled with files and binders of previous years, events and activities. And after the first few months, I said, we're emptying those file cabinets, and getting rid of everything in it or they're gone. Um, and just because I didn't want people going back to the old what we've always done and open it up and do it again. So that was a big culture change there. And then at Cornell, I inherited. Um, when I arrived, we were in an old alumni house up on campus. The rest of the division was down just off edge of campus. Um, and it was a 28 person alumni team. And um, when it was all said and done, it, I, I left five years later, but three years later, we were at 53 people. We got rid of 10 and added 35 new hires, which completely changed the posture of the alumni program, which was to lean away from the rest of advancement and to, be the, I mean, it was a strong alumni base, very loyal alumni population, actually a pretty solid program in the, but a very traditional program that was postured away from the rest of advancement. So I came in under Charlie Flager's leadership and he said, I need you to help me move this back to leaning in to advancement. That's really what it was. And we spent three years changing it and then two years kind of experiencing that change, which was wonderful, but it's yeah. hard. 
It's it's hard. And that I think, you know, the, the change that you described is one that, you know, a lot of vice presidents from advancement are looking to see accomplished, right? It's often why we get hired as consultants. Exactly. You know, in that respect, there's no doubt about that. I think there's other sort of cultural changes that are interesting, like shifting around approaches to engagement, for example. Uh, you know, tech, ingraining technology, using yeah. new technology, right? I mean, when we, in my last role, I tried to make sure we were tackling problems with a digital first perspective on things, you know, and another one is your, is a board change, a culture of the board and the role of the board. You, you tell a great story about how in the early days of your time at Longwood, you, you took up meditating to deal with the oh. stress of the board. <laughs> God, I had never been so stressed out in my professional life, just working with the alumni board and, you know, over the course of time, you got to earn some wins and and develop relationships and and then have some strategic direction. Then I think, you know, I had less so much less anxiety over time, but because of the direction the board went. But uh, well, so we've got a great guest today to talk about these issues and more. We're going to go ahead and bring out our special guest. Let's bring him out to the show. Add to the stream. Thomas MacArthur, how are you? Hey, good, guys. How are you doing? Best backdrop in the business. Hey, this is great. You know, they um, they redid this office and made sure that they had this beautiful UB blue painted with logo. And uh, <laughs> yeah, it's a great spot to uh, to entertain alumni. Well, t- we've been talking, Thomas, as you've heard about sort of organizational change, and you've been in your role at the University of Buffalo for better than a year now, but Buffalo is your alma mater, right? You've been a volunteer there, you know, you have been a really a part of that organization's alumni program, not just running it, but, you know, breathing it as for a long time. And uh, we wanted to talk today about some organizational change and changing cultures and and that sort of uh, issue as sort of the, the string for our episode. But maybe you could just start by telling us a little bit about the shift in culture you've been trying to bring about at the University of Buffalo. Yeah, thank you. Um, and I agree with Chris. It's hard, right? Even if it's change that we all agree on, that we know will get us to a better spot, um, it still takes a lot of time. It takes reinforcement. It takes uh, checking back in with our teams to ensure that, you know, we are still moving in the right direction. Um, so, you know, when I think about the culture shift that we're, we're making here, first, we've got a, an amazing team who's doing really great work. Um, but oftentimes in alumni engagement, there's this idea that the more we do, the better we are. And that's not always the case, right? And so we have to really focus on being strategic and intentional, focus on our goals. Um, so in order to get to there, I think I kind of follow the kind of Ted Lasso um, approach, which is if you get the culture right, the results will follow. If we build a culture that is inclusive and diverse, where people feel like they belong, where they are seen and celebrated as their whole self, where we have balance and intentionality, where we allow people's voices to be heard, um, if we focus on the balance, all of the other things will follow. So we've done a couple of things, I think, that are um, innovative to try to move in that direction. So the first thing we did was talking with the team, looking at the number of meetings everyone had over the course of the day. And so we instituted uh, these two pauses, one in the morning, one in the afternoon. Mm-hmm. And we agreed that um, as our teams, annual giving and alumni engagement, we wouldn't schedule any internal meetings during that time. And so it was meant to give people a chance to get up, don't look at the screen, take a walk, color, uh, meditate, refocus yourself, listen to some music, because all the research, you know, and Case has done some research around this as well, you know, it shows that when we actually do those pauses, our brains kind of cool down a little bit, right? When we're not in meetings all day. And that allows us to be more creative, more intentional, more efficient. Um, mm-hmm. And so that was one thing that we did. But even that, everyone really wants to do it. The challenge is being consistent with doing it, right? Reminding everyone, because it's hard once you get into a project to kind of, oh, it's time for the pause. And so we've really kind of focused on being flexible and saying, take your pause at some time in the morning and sometime in the afternoon. Um, but that's, you know, really important. And when we think about intentionality, we've created, and this came from, you know, Chris, these six questions that we're asking everyone to think about, you know, does the project align with our, our goals? So anytime we, we think about something new, um, what do we want to accomplish? What's the outcome? Um, 
How, who's the target audience? How are we going to measure success? And this is on everyone's desk. We've got it on our conference room tables. Another just slight reminder that um, we want to be intentional in everything we do. And the last thing I'll share, which is something I've uh, been doing for a while, are these um, kind of water drops. And so the whole idea is came from a book of Don Clifton, um, How to Fill Your Bucket. Everyone's got a water bucket. Good, if positive interactions fill it, negative drain it. So every time someone does something great, recognize them. So people are hanging these on their walls, their bulletin boards, their doors. It's a chance to celebrate the great work that people are doing. And I'm, I don't think we often do that enough. It's just on to the next project, the next event, the next trip. And we've really got to focus on celebrating those wins. Yeah. Love it, Thomas. I love everything you just described there. And the old notion of culture eat strategy for breakfast is really true. And if you don't get after it the way you're doing it with constant reinforcement, love the water bucket thing, all that wonderful. Good stuff, man. Good for yeah, you. Thanks. Good yeah. lesson. Well, and so, Thomas, as you've been thinking about you know, a unified strategy for alumni engagement, a lot of the things you've been working towards and you've been describing is changing culture, right? But I think it's fair to say that you've also had to make some structural changes, right? And process changes. Uh, UB is a large state institution. It's a complicated place. Uh, you know, there's as a guy who worked at the University of Virginia, also a complicated place that, you know, it, you know, when there's a place that has a lot of uh, amazing dynamics to it, what it looks like. But so how would you describe some of the structural changes that exist, or challenges that exist and um, that prevent everyone perhaps from moving forward in the same direction? Yeah, it is. It's an incredibly complex institution. And so we've got a little bit of everything. We've got the central office um, that does a lot of kind of those anchor programs, homecoming and alumni reunion weekend and some of the taking faculty on the road. And then we have some of our schools and units that have alumni officers who report up through our central office. And then we've got some alumni officers who report up through their deans who also carry other priorities um, within their titles. And so trying to get everyone to move in the right direction um, has certainly been challenging, not because anyone doesn't want to. Everyone wants to move in this direction. I think that's been clear from this strategic planning process. Um, what we have to do is you know, put in the process, the structure that allows us to communicate regularly, that allows us to tap into the expertise of each of those individuals and how they work with boards and their deans and faculty. So we, we started off the year with a, a retreat with everyone on the team to think about, you know, what are, what's going well, what are pain points, where do we need to move some big boulders? Um, and then we've got every other month uh, meetings with those individuals to talk about some of those big, big kind of topics that we're looking to, to solve. Um, so it's, it's certainly complicated, but the strategic planning process has allowed us to bring all the key players to the table from athletics to student life, to every school and unit, to the central office to talk about what do we value? What do we do well? Where are the opportunities that we have? Um, and what can we take advantage of? We're a lean shop. We do not have the most number of, you know, the largest number of staff or budget dollars, but we've got people who are who want to move in that direction of a coordinated effort. So when we communicate, we don't just communicate to the central staff, we communicate to all of our alumni officers. When we celebrate wins, we do it with everyone. Um, when we celebrate the most successful giving day at the University of Buffalo that we just had last month, we do it with everyone. It's, um, it's really about being intentional in the communication and building trust and those relationships that are so important uh, to our work. You know, we do it externally all the time. We're out there you know, working with our boards and developing those relationships, sometimes we forget that our internal campus partners can be just as powerful and helpful and important to our work. And so, you know, those are some of the ways that we've tried to really build that coalition of all of us moving in that same direction. Yeah, I like it. Thanks, Thomas. That was great. Uh, and Chris, you, of course, have had a chance to work with uh, UB on an assessment, right? We've just, as we described, we're doing some strategic planning work, putting the finishing touches on that with Thomas and his team there. I'll start thinking big picture now. What are the factors that really make a difference in terms of making sure that Thomas, the rest of the university, everybody is moving forward together in the right direction? Yeah, I think Thomas has touched on it. Is the, the key to all it is is the the one word is partnerships. Thomas, on that list of the six questions, you went through the first four. Read the fifth question. 
um, who else needs to know about our plans? And that is internal to advancement and all of our campus partners. So you're exactly right. It makes us pause and go, who else should I be collaborating with on? Yeah. How many times, Ryan, Thomas, you've seen this too, where the person across the hall from somebody doesn't know about the thing they've been working on. It's the next day. And all of a sudden, oh, did you know that the volunteer thing is happening or whatever? And we just don't tell people, let alone our partners across campus. And uh, at a big place like UB, it's critical that we're communicating and coordinating and collaborating and partnering. And, um, uh, you know, the, the best, the best alumni directors, I like to think spend, you know, a, 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 some of their time each week in their office, some of their time each week walking around campus and some of their time each week traveling to, you know, regions where their alumni are. And Thomas just came back from an event. In fact, would you mind telling everybody what you guys just did last night? I would love to hear, love everybody hear that story. Yeah, I'll give you, I'll, I'll tell you about the, 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 the series of events. And then I'll tell you, this is another culture shift. I think that, um, I'm super proud of the team for. So, um, we had this global alumni networking night on our founders day, the, the day of the, you know, birthday of the university, 29 events in nine different countries. You know, our international Wayloon, um, was pulling in volunteers from, from our international city. Fatty Star was pulling in domestically all across the country. Um, so they were just happy hour networking events. And the coolest part to me was, and this is totally internal, right? Alumni didn't know about this piece, but throughout the course of the day, as the staff was traveling, everyone was posting little things from their adventures in a Teams chat. And then as the event started, people were posting photos and stories of connecting with alumni. And it was just a great way to celebrate months of hard work in the making, um, so yeah, it was great to have the staff out there meeting with alumni, developing relationships with key volunteers, and doing board recruitment. All of those good things. My, my rule of thumb on a on an alumni position like yours, Thomas, is three days a week on average in the office working with your team, one day a week working around campus conducting you know those partnership meetings and collaborations, and one day a week on the road. You know, average that out over the course of a year, and that's roughly twenty percent on the road, 20 percent around campus and 60 percent of your time focusing with your team. And, and, and that's pr probably a lot in the office for someone who's in early in their career. As you get further in your career, those numbers on the other two can go up more time on campus and more time out on the road. I see, um, Ryan, real quick before you jump on yeah. to the next question. Um, Joshua Jones, Josh, how are you? Put in the chat. Uh, are those six questions in shareable form? Yes, they are. Joshua, just send me an email. Chris.marshall at cmac.me, and I'll send it to you. anybody on the call. Please feel free to send why don't me. We, Chris, why don't we throw it up on our LinkedIn, the, the CMAC feed yep. on LinkedIn? And um, Josh and anybody else, if you're not following CMAC on LinkedIn, do that and I'll share the in a post after the show. Yep. And thanks to Pete and our Carl, colleague Carla. How are you, Carla? And Rosalind from joining in from University of Warwick. Uh, and Dan Olds, who's who's two miles away from me here in Brunswick, Maine. I'm going to see him in about a half hour. <laughs> Glad you could join uh, everybody. But uh, so Thomas, let's talk a little bit more about some of the structural elements that can prevent culture shift. Have you had to reset some of the priorities that came to when it came to emphasizing different programs and initiatives uh, in an attempt to sort of change the culture? Yeah. So, you know, when I first arrived um, last June, we had um, one individual who was working 50% of the time on affinity engagement and how it was kind of defined as, you know, clubs, organizations, um, and engaging those alumni. And while I think that is incredibly important and I'd love to do it, do have two or three people doing that type of work. The one piece that we were, were missing was a real focus on identity-based alumni engagement. And so we looked around campus, we looked at um, from a student life perspective, where was the university focusing on? So students of color, LGBTQ+, Latinx, women, first-generation college students. And we said, okay, this is an area where we have to carve out, reallocate budget dollars and staff time to ensure that we are creating an inclusive alumni community. Um, one where alumni see themselves in the programming that we're doing and, you know, this is a this is a complicated, challenging topic to address. It's it, it makes a lot of people uncomfortable. Um, and so we are pushing through that discomfort at times 
because we know that makes us better. We know when we focus on diversity, when we diversify our teams, our boards, our volunteers, that we all get better. We come up with better ideas. We engage more people. Um, so that is a real focus for us this year. We we're able to hire a graduate assistant for multicultural alumni engagement. So with that kind of shift, it also aligned with as a division, um, we are doing, a, we just finished a strategic plan for DEI. And kind of the three components are that uh, of that are one, how do we create, make sure that our staff have the cultural competencies they need in order to do the work that we're trying to accomplish? Two, how do we focus on attracting diverse talent, retaining them, promoting them? And uh, three, then how do we focus on creating an inclusive alumni engagement community? So we just had an alumni of color uh, reception in New York. Uh, we had one in Buffalo. Huge success. And I say that based on the number of people who were engaged at that event, taking photos, posting to social media, telling other people they should have been there. That is going to be a key focus of uh, for us moving forward. Um, but it took some reallocation of resources. And sometimes we've got to do that. And we have to stop doing some of the things that we have done for a long time. Right, Chris, to your point earlier, um, sometimes we, we get in a little bit of a habit. And we've yeah. got to be focused on maybe pausing and reallocating those resources to, to be where we need to. It's, it's tough, you know, because there's, there's a lot of, you know, job responsibilities around those, uh, you know, existing initiatives, right? There's someone who... Someone's you know, baby, right? <laughs> someone's baby, you know, that you have to stop, right? And, and sort of uh, come around to the idea that all programs run their course and all of them need uh, reinvigoration at, at one point or another, if not in an ongoing way. Right. Yeah. Uh, but so and, what do you think surprised you the most so far and, and you know, uh, their efforts to sort of shift culture uh, for the first year you've, so you've been there. You know, I think it, not necessarily a, a surprise, but this is, I, I, I believe true um, with, in every place that I've ever worked, which is if we empower our staff, to think about those changes that we were just talking about. If we empower them to be creative, to think big, they can really come up with some amazing ideas and concepts. And so, you know, I use our regional programs for an example. We, tr we had 26 regions. We tried to do everything equal in all of them. And we just can't do that. We don't have the staff, the human resources, or the dollars in order to be super successful in that. So working with... Um, the individual, our staff member who oversees the regions to say, gosh, if you were to do this from scratch, how would you do it? How would you prioritize? What are the criteria you would look at um, to, to evaluate which regions should get the most resources, which get the, the secondary tier, and then which get really just volunteer engagement? And that has happened so many times where the staff has stepped up, stepped in to say, hey, I've got some new ideas that I want to try out. And when you empower our teams to do that, um, they often come up with just amazing ideas. And then you bring other people to the table. We get even better, right? We continue to refine until we've got this finished product, just like the strategic plan. Uh, the more voices, the better. And sometimes that can be, um, I would say, frustrating for the individuals who own those programs or even us as leaders because, you know, in order to do it right, it takes time. And I am the first person to say I'm guilty of, always wanting to, to see the maximum results, the maximum amount of impact as quick as possible. Um, but we've got to slow ourselves down because we know that when we slow down, when we gather the feedback, we get the input, it does come up with a better product, but it does, it needs, we need patience. And I don't always have that as people will tell you. <laughs> two two follow-up comments from me on this, Ryan, is one, um, Thomas has given uh, as a leader, the license for that to happen. And it starts with the leader giving that license permission to think differently and do. So kudos to you, Thomas. There's a management skill set. There's a leadership skill set. And I could see the way you're talking. You clearly have that. And it's been fun to watch on the sidelines. So kudos to you. And the second thing is um, a former one of our former guests on our show, Brian Cisco, the VP for advancement at NC State, he uses the expression um, when we talk about how quickly do we need to move on this thing, and he'll, he'll always say, I'll give him full credit for this. I love this line. He says, as fast as we, fast as we can, but as slow as we must. Mm. 
That's great. Brilliant. It's a brilliant line. Yeah. You know what it means. When you when you when you go too fast, you're gonna piss off somebody along the way and you gotta slow it down to make sure they get back on the board and all that. So yeah. It's kind of like the uh, it's it's sort of similar to we're building the plane while we're flying it only <laughs> only use only using different terms you know right. which I think what you've just described is a little healthier yeah. than describing we're building the plane and flying it at the same time so yeah uh, but that that makes a lot of sense and but you know one of the things I wanted to mention that I feel like one of the big culture shifts a lot of alumni teams are trying to make is embracing metrics right is embracing data making data-driven decisions. I think back to my own tenure, one of the things I was most excited about was how we were able to make a lot of decisions on the people who were going to be in our volunteer programs, on our alumni board, based on a history of engagement participation, right? Based on having engagement data that um, told us who our, our cheerleaders, our brand ambassadors were. Um, how are you thinking about metrics at uh, UB? And, and Chris, maybe you could follow that point up just with how you see metrics being sort of an important part of any engagement sure. culture shift. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think, you know, we have fully embraced uh, metrics for a long time back, I would probably say 15, 10, 12, 15 years ago, uh, Larry Solinsky, who sat in this uh, role and Kristen Murphy were very important in developing uh, an engagement score, thinking about metrics and reporting. And so we've had kind of a long history of that. We fully adopted the AEM metrics. Uh, Jeff Bartlett uh, led those efforts here for UB uh, before um, my arrival. So we've got goals around every single one of the four modes. We hit our volunteer goal. Uh, so far, we hit that last month. We're very close on the experiential and the communication um, and getting closer on the philanthropy. Um, and then we also have a dashboard that shows school and unit metrics for all the four modes. Um, so that's one piece. Then we also look at, you know, our, how are we bringing more non-engaged alumni into the fold? So increasing um, that number, um, deepening those relationships. So we're still looking at engagement score, score to show some deepening. I'd like to see us get to a point where for each of the, the four modes, we could look at the number of engagements within a particular mode, and then how does that change behavior? But we're just, we're not there yet. Um, we're also looking at things like, how do we help support retention in the annual fund and acquisition of new donors? How mm -hmm. do we look at the number of dollars we bring in through events and you know, texting to give, all of those types of things? And actually an idea that Kristen Murphy brought back from a, a conference really focuses on how do we, um, engage those into those alumni who have been disqualified by gift officers, right? They obviously had a meeting with a gift officer and maybe they can't give at a major gift level, but they may be very interested in how they engage with the university. And we could actually help keep that going um, by referrals to our digital gift officer program or to our alumni engagement officers in the schools and units. So that's how we're thinking about metrics, right? You don't want to be, you want to be data focused. Um, but I think, uh, or data focused, uh, field driven, I think is, is what a former VP used to say, right? We want to know the work that we yeah. have to do, but you've got to be informed by the data in order to make the biggest uh, impact. Yep. yep. I, I, I'm a big metrics person. I, I coached a sport that went to the hundredth of a second. So I was, <laughs> I had a scoreboard at the end of the day. So, but I, whenever I get into my metrics groove, I, I always stop and I said, let me, let me, before I go any further on this, at the end of the day, we're a relationship business and we have to keep that in mind. It's about people. So we can't lose track of that. Um, my, my comment on this, Thomas, you already, first of all, I would describe what you're doing at UB as um, if someone was to go on a journey, we'll use a baseball metaphor and around the base paths, you guys are rounding third compared to most, <laughs> most places. Most places are just getting out of the batter's box on this. You've got some pretty sophisticated modeling work that you're doing that's uh, going to allow you to make some informed decisions with. So I love that. One of the next steps, though, and you started it there, is is the sharing the data with the deans or any other partner on a college or university campus. And when we did this at Cornell, I'll never forget it, Ryan. We we shared the ten colleges and schools. Here's our overall alumni engagement data, and here here here's how it breaks down by school and college. And then never forget the hotel school dean, which would have, should have, and has ever since the highest engagement score because it's a very niche program at the institution. Uh, had the lowest score when we pre presented it. And I insisted it was right. And he said, well, it can't be, you know, we're the hotel school. I said, well, this is what's in the database. 
And he turned and looked at his advancement person that the next day they had the highest score because it wasn't in the database, right? It doesn't happen if it's not in there. So recording it is, yeah. is a simple thing, but it's an important component to it. So anyway. and it's often, it's, yeah, it's hard too, like recording things, you know? Go ahead, Thomas. Yeah. Well, and I'll just add one, one piece to that, Chris, which is um, so historically, uh, we advancement has met with each team set goals at the beginning of the year and then also a mid-year review and alumni engagement was not at the table for that yeah, and this yeah, year I'm we so made glad. the change to include yeah. alumni engagement and annual Love. giving at both the mid-year and the goal setting which allows us to you know to present to the deans as if engagement is is a critical because it is part of our fundraising success it's not necessarily that it happens over here and then someday they make a gift no it's about this holistic engagement and you're right, the deans yeah. can be very competitive. So it's good to show them that. Exactly. Yeah, that's what it was. When they saw themselves against each other, they were like, oh. So uh, real quick shout out to Carol Massey, uh, Scott Francis, and Robert Cherry on the on the chat. Thank you for your comments and for joining us. East Carolina in the house and war damn eagle, Scott. Yeah. Um, love seeing that in the chat. Thanks for everyone for joining. Uh, we're up, up against the time clock already. So we're going to shift gears and record our bonus section of the podcast this week but chris who do we have on in two weeks we have angelique grant from the inclusion firm so that we have several partner cmac works with works with washburn mcgoldrick some other uh, groups and one of them is the inclusion firm who does diversity equity inclusion belonging work and she is one of the best in the business you'll love her uh so we'll be talking about diversity equity inclusion and belonging within advancement and some of the work she's been doing with many of her clients and some of them overlap with ours yeah, great guest. Excited for that conversation. Really important one. That's in four weeks. We're taking next oh, two weeks from right. now. We're taking off, Ryan. Remember, we're taking the Memorial yeah. Day week off. <laughs> so I know everyone's going to be disappointed that we're going to not going to be around in two weeks. You'll you'll be missing an alumnus in your feed in two weeks. But we'll be back in June with a great guest. And uh, thanks for joining us. Have a great weekend, everybody. See you later. Thank you all, Thomas. Thanks, thank everyone. You. Well Have done. A great day. All right, we are back in the bonus section with Thomas MacArthur and, of course, Chris Marshall. Chat more alumni and donor engagement. Um, yeah, we've we've obviously we've we've had a great first half of the show, a lively discussion about uh, change and culture shifts in alumni engagement. You're the uh, uh, associate vice president for alumni engagement and annual giving at Buffalo University of Buffalo. But before you went to UB uh, for the AVP role, you were leading the alumni and parent engagement program at the College of Worcester, which are two very different schools. Uh, I thought I would, you know, we could start off the bonus section just by talking about what you led learning the team at the College of Worcester that you thought might be applicable to UB, but maybe you had to switch your thinking, that kind of a thing. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, I'm grateful for, uh, you know, my time at the College of Worcester. It was a really fantastic place, right? Um, we had a great team. We had wonderful volunteers. Obviously, at a smaller institution, there is that real deep connection often with our alumni. There's more engagement. Um, they've got a longer history of doing alumni engagement than we do at a public state institution like the University of Buffalo. And so there's a little bit of a shift there. But I will say, you know, it, I'm grateful to um, two mentors who were there, um, Wayne Webster, who was the vice president for advancement when I was there, who's now the interim president of the College of Worcester and soon to be or, and is president elect of uh, Albion College. I'm super proud of him. Um, and Sarah Bolton, who was the president of Worcester and now the president uh, at Women College. But they both afforded me the opportunity to kind of dip my toe into different initiatives, right? Adding parent engagement onto uh, kind of my portfolio, asking me to oversee um, advancement services and the CRM selection and implementation and conversion, mm. uh, campaign launch, uh, presidential launch, uh, overseeing some of the marketing efforts. And so, you know, all of that helped prepare for this much larger uh, role, um, but it still comes down to making time for relationships, making time to do the work that needs to be done in order to move us forward, to listen to your team. Um, it was a smaller team there, right? So there was a, a deeper dynamics. 
Um, but coming in here, taking the lessons learned from the College of Worcester and being able to apply them here, how we use our alumni board and our board of trustees and translating some of those um, kind of initiatives like a self-reflection for our alumni association board of directors. So we implemented that, a code of ethical conduct, those types of things. So there are little things that you were able to bring over. Um, but uh, it was a great time in my career. I'm super uh, fortunate to have been there. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm sure. And the switch over to UB has been a good one. I think it's safe to say that um, there have been plenty of challenges, but the work uh, you've done strategic planning with Chris over the last year with myself, I think have been really informative. And uh, but I wanted to ask, you know, has going through this the strategic planning process with CMAC updated some of your thinking with respect to how you were planning to build the program there? And has it helped sort of clarify uh, around mission and vision and values and priorities and goals? Has it has that been a valuable experience? Yeah, absolutely. Right. I mean, anytime you can get everyone together to think big picture, I think we do. We win. Right. We learn so much from that. We are still a very siloed, decentralized uh, operation. But this process of bringing people together to think about key priorities has really helped us. When I first started, so um, I mentioned in the previous segment about our some of our alumni officers report up through deans and are a little more decentralized. Um, we did a retreat when we first started. Uh, Cynthia Shore, who works in our management office, she let helped uh, host it at her cabin in the woods. Um, and what came out of that was, gosh, we need to do more to partner together on key initiatives. And so we carved some money out of the budget to say, this is a multi-unit collaboration fund. So if you have an idea that involves at least one other school or unit, we'll kick in 50%. Each of those school and units kick in 25%. We help with some of the planning and marketing. They help get their respective schools there or a faculty member for a panel or, or key volunteers. You know, it's just moving us in that direction. But the strategic planning process has helped us think big about what do we want to accomplish? What does alumni engagement look like at the University at Buffalo? And and how do we get there? What are the resources we need, right? Which then allows me to go to our vice president, to our executive team, and make the case as to why investing in alumni engagement is so important and how it helps drive annual fund results um, and major gift uh, discovery work and um, board members and key volunteers. So those are some of the, the things that have come out of that plan. Thanks, Thomas. That was great. And we've I've really, as my first strategic plan as a consultant, it's been great to watch and to sort of be involved in that process and learn from Chris as he's been conducting it as well. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit more. We touched on it in the first half an hour around uh, on-ramps for uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion, participation, uh, different types of initiatives that are really going to uh, broaden and make alumni engagement more accessible. But you're also the unit diversity officer for advancement at UB. What what has that meant to you personally and professionally? Yeah, I'm you know um, I'm uh, fortunate to, to serve in that role and help represent our division to the broader university um, community, each of the academic units, and then as well as the kind of major uh, non-academic units have unit diversity officers and. Um, you know, for me, it goes back to a mentor that I had um, when I was an undergraduate. Uh, Cheyenne Jumana was her name, and she um, started off as uh, the switchboard operator, went to be the uh, the secretary to the vice president for student life, which is where I got to know her so well. And then she actually started the first um, office of multicultural engagement um, for the college, for Hilbert College. And so she was the one who opened kind of my eyes to diversity, equity, inclusion, to privilege, to power, and how all of that factors into the work that we that we do on a daily basis. Um, so for, for me to have that kind of contextual background that she provided me and then gave me lots of things to read and discover and watch and conversations, um, you know, that allowed me to, it shaped kind of how I see the world and, and see it much differently now. Um, and realize that um, as a white male, um, there are spaces that I don't need to be in, right? We need to carve out spaces specifically for 
um, individuals who have been ex historically excluded by um, our culture and by systemic, um, by system. Um, and so that shaped how I approach alumni engagement. And it's so important for us to listen, to hear those different perspectives, to lift up voices, to give up our seat, um, to uh, allow others to be at the table. And so it's also shaped kind of why DEI is so important to our division and also just our, our office in general. Yeah. Um, how do you think about the challenge of engaging? Uh, how do you think colleges and schools should be thinking about identity-based on-ramps for alumni engagement? You were, you were just mentioning that. Like, what does it look like? And uh, are there more opportunities and challenges when it comes to focusing on these areas in our, sort of our political landscape? I know we had one call uh, several a couple months back where there was you know friction on near campus around these types of issues, and I feel like um, you know what does it mean to sort of be to focusing on these developing these programs and having that mentality that you described. Yeah, I think, you know, first it comes down to the institution's priorities, right? And for every institution that I've worked at, diversity, equity, inclusion, and creating spaces where people belong is one of the top priorities. And, you know, after the murder of George Floyd, almost every institution said, yes, this is a priority. Now, the challenge is not every institution then put the resources in place to actually take action, right? It's great to make a yeah. statement, but if we don't actually take the action, um, those words mean nothing. We actually do more harm, right? Because we make the promise that you matter as an individual and that we care about you, but yet we're not going to do anything to, to do the further engagement. So when, you know, when I arrived at UB, it was great to see that we already had staff and student life focusing on engaging students of color. And we had staff focused on first-generation college students and LGBTQ plus students. So for me, there were natural connections to say, we need to build engagement programs around these identities to ensure that, you know, one, selfishly, it helps us as an institution, right? It helps our students be better prepared for um, life after college. Um, it also helps with retention efforts. Um, and I haven't been able to show the data, uh, you know, correlation just yet. But um, I have this strong belief that if if we are connecting students with alumni who have similar lived experiences, it will help them. Um, be retained by the institution. And then it's also the, you know, for our alumni community, right? It's, as I said before, that diversity makes us better. Hearing different voices allows us to come up with better programming, better ways to engage. And so we have really focused on those particular identities. Um, what was also really nice about um, UB is that when we look across the schools and units, many of them were doing a lot of this work but we weren't kind of curating it into a, a way to, to share with our alumni to say, look, at the, the, the medical school is doing all of this around engaging women and uh, multicultural, um, you know, future doctors and management is doing this over here. But we weren't sharing it kind of in one space. And so that was kind of refreshing. And then I'll just share one other story, which leads into kind of another key strategy for us, which is... Um, we had a speaker on campus who was, um, you know, incredibly controversial and made a statement about uh, transgenderism being eradicated from uh, our culture, which, as you can imagine, created a lot of um, discussion on campus uh, as a state institution. Um, but what I really appreciated was our division of advancement came up personally, all individuals with a challenge for our giving day, uh, for our LGBTQ faculty staff association to do that work with students. And at first it was, you know, the year before they did, I think 20 donors and a couple thousand dollars. So it was going to be, if we get to 60 donors, we'll give $3,000. And we did that, I think in the first hour, then it went to a hundred donors. Then it went, it ended up, I think 187 donors and over $10,000 raised. And I say that to say that if we provide opportunities for our alumni to give to things that, that matter to them, that they care about, we will see increases in engagement and in philanthropy. And so we just finished a, a survey to all of our alumni asking them, what causes do you care about from democracy to healthcare to sustainability um, to DEI? Um, and then we're going to use that data to then form our communication themes for next year. So each 
quarter will have a theme where events will fall under that, annual fund appeals, impact stories, social media posts, to be just very intentional about how we're communicating based on what alumni tell us they they care about. Sorry, so wrong answer. So you're asking their thoughts and you're responding to their response. <laughs> <laughs> What a, what a concept. <laughs> I know it seems, but it's, but it's hard, right? Because it takes so much planning. you yeah, got to pull yeah. together, you know, 30 people to think about creating this plan. And then how are we going to intentionally do things within each yeah. of those areas? But so, but it's the right thing to do. I'm going to ask you two questions. One, a, 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 a heartbreaking curveball, and one's going to be an easy underhand softball toss to you. Mm. And, and the first one, I want to ask the hard one first, which is the, Everywhere we talk with clients, if you have a limited set of resources, you have a certain amount of people, which gives you a certain amount of time, a certain amount of budget. If you are going to try to do something new, the only way to do it in that scenario, right, is to stop doing something else. Well, the other way that we've been doing as an industry for a long time, as you know, Thomas, is just throw it on them. They'll figure it out. (laughs) And the plate gets further overflown, right? But let's just presume presume we were doing the right thing and starting and stopping as we needed to. What have been some of the things you've had to do there, the hard decisions you've had to make? Anything come to mind off the top of your head of the most difficult thing you've had to do? Maybe a stop that you've put put brakes on something that uh, you look back at now and you. Yeah, you know, I mean, I think, you know, for us, we've this is this wasn't an easy one, but it took. um partnership and willingness of my colleague uh, in advancement services to to help us with this. So our staff was doing a lot with data. They were, you know, looking up the alumni when they registered for events, capturing their ID, coding them pre-event, and then coding them after, doing all the contact information updates mm-hmm. um, from employment to email, all of that stuff. And these are these are your professional frontline engagement staff we're talking yeah, about. Yeah, these yeah. Are, these are alumni officers, right? And right. so the staff was really frustrated and, you know, was saying, like, we can't do more engagement if we continue to focus on some of these other things. And so... You know, I was grateful to my colleague, Kathleen Heckman, who's the other associate VP and oversees uh, advancement services and Kathy Suber on the team. And we it took us a couple months to work through all of the process and the scenarios. And, okay, we can make some concessions here, but you might have to still do this. And maybe we can put this on a student. Maybe we can do this over here. But we came out with uh, the end result, which I think, you know, as someone who's overseen advancement services, so I understand the the data piece as well, it preserves the integrity of the data. Mm -hmm. Um, It allows our staff to, you know, our engagement staff to stay focused on the engagement piece. Um, That is something that we stopped doing in the staff celebrated by, right? I mean, they were not unhappy. You just gave them hours of time back, right? You just like gifted them. (laughs) Absolutely. I'll give you another example. This one I'll try to be brief on, which is, you know, at at Buffalo, we have... um, about eight different alumni associations that are separate 501c3s. You can't be brief on this topic. <laughs> I know. How much time do we have left? 42 hours. Um, but uh, so so the challenge there was SUNY as a system has asked us to have one alumni association and that's it. So we're in the process of kind of merging all of these associations into one. And as you can imagine, they've operated for decades very independently, very successfully. And we've been trying to work through this process. And I think the keys have been, you know, building relationships with those volunteers um, and the alumni officers, tapping into their knowledge and expertise, having open conversations about this is what I don't like. This is not going to fly for my board. The, the dinner we had with you and those folks was one of the most amazing things with to hear them talk through these things. I love keep going. I'm sorry. Yeah. Up. No, I mean, so it, so, you know, I mean, I will say that has been incredibly challenging and has taken a lot of time, but to your comment earlier um, in our discussion, in order to do it right, you've got to slow down. We can't just say SUNY says we have to be um, in compliance. This means one alumni association, yeah. dissolve your 501c3s and join this. It's like, oh my gosh, no, you've got to recognize it's civil war in Buffalo, right? <laughs> yeah. And you've got to respect the great work that these associations have yeah. done over the decades, the philanthropy they've raised, the scholarships, the engagement. And so that has been challenging. More to come on that. It's probably going to take us another six months. We'll have a whole other session on that topic. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, we could. 
but that's that's the the, the challenging. So let me promise. I promise you the easy one. This is a fun one. I, I do this in interviews all the time. I, I call this the blank check and magic wand. You can do whatever you want. So this is an easy one. You have no restraints on this. Are there things on your list if you could have that blank check and and no costs and the magic wand to get all the political bullshit out of the way that you'd have to get through at a large public, right? What would be the thing you would want to do? A private plane, so I don't have to wait in security. No, <laughs> yeah. um, no, you know I think you, you know, you have a blank check. It's fine. <laughs> I, I would say you know. I would increase the staff size in a couple key areas. One, as I said, DEI, I would do more yeah. to engage our identities. I do more to engage those affinity clubs, organizations, Greek life. Um, those are huge opportunities. And very often they're already engaging with current students and each other, but we just don't know about it. Right. So I, I'd, I'd put some focus there. I would put some focus on uh, building out more fully our international alumni engagement program, because We've got some opportunity there for engagement for, you know, prospective student pipeline resources are limited. And so that makes it challenging. Um, I put a couple people on communication and data, right? Understanding the data and being able to communicate to our alumni in ways that are specific to them. We're trying to do that, right? But we don't have the tools necessarily. We're, we're doing a CRM conversion, a new marketing cloud, a new event management platform, but we need more people to do it the way that Amazon does it, to do it the mm -hmm. way that when you yeah. go shopping and they send you an email five minutes after you left something in your cart, don't forget to check out. You know, if we could, if we could put the resources into understanding the data, the demographics, being able to communicate with alumni in very intentional and specific ways that matter to them, um, and then being able to do the engagement work um, that is the one of the greatest parts of our job, right? To be able to talk with our alumni, be on the road, do visits, and help them make their impact on the university through their philanthropy, through their um, their engagement is so rewarding. It's why we do this work. It makes the it makes the tougher stuff worth it when we are on the road and we're yeah. talking with alumni yeah. and they're so grateful to the work that we've done. So those would be my couple of things. Yeah, great. great. So really most of it focused around staffing and getting more bandwidth out on to be able to do the work we do. So Thomas, I'm going to give you an A minus on your answer. The, the A plus answer is when you include at the very beginning, unlimited time from CMAC consulting. <laughs> well, that I thought was a given. I thought it was just a blank check. I could call you in the middle of the night, you know, like the president. And you already do, man. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> That's true. I did text you both very early this morning. <laughs> the retainer forever. Contract. Right. <laughs> <laughs> is what we is what we want uh but would you say so would you do anything differently thomas uh, if you go back in time over this last year anything that you would now thomas how, how many how many so, years months and then where uh, are we? june 1st will be a full year so oh we're my God, still yeah. just <laughs> under a year um you know what i would do differently is what i say in every single job and i i'm trying to learn um but i'm, I'm still not good at it it's probably two things the first is um, because I want to see that maximum return and that impact, I do move a little quick. And, you know, it's really important for us when we're thinking about some of these cultural changes, process changes, to continue to check in with our staff. So, you know, we, we talked about when we first got together at the beginning of the year in our first retreat, we asked them some really tough questions about, do you feel like you belong at this, in this team? Um, do you feel heard? Um, do you feel like we are supporting you as best we can? And then we did another mid-year anonymous check-in um, that we just completed. And we've got a meeting on Monday to go through the results with everyone to say, we are making progress, thank goodness. Um, but there's more communication that needs to happen. Um, we need to make sure that we are checking in more regularly. So I try to get up and walk around and talk to people and hear you know, their perspectives and, and what we're thinking about because... There's so much we can learn. And sometimes I think, you know, in this job, I've learned, you know, as you get more and more layers of management, it can be harder to hear all those voices. And so you've got to get up and, and walk around. And then the other thing I would say, this is just personally. So for advice for anyone um, who's in these roles, I think balance is so important. In the first probably nine months, I was working myself into a, a crazy yeah. situation. Um, you know, one that... I ended up with pneumonia and 
you know, I'm on a Sunday night and I'm supposed to fly again on Wednesday. And I asked the doctor, well, can I travel on Wednesday? And they're like, no, you idiot. You've got to stay <laughs> home and rest. What's wrong with you? Um, I remember during that time, you and I had this conversation about like how many nights a week you were doing. You were working like 70 hour weeks, pretty nonstop for a, right out of the gate. And yeah, good lesson. it's, just, good it's not sustainable. And, no. you know, and, and I think we can, you know, because we want to be visible, we want to hear those stories from sure. alumni. We want to build the relationships. It's tough because you want to show up and show support and see how things are going. Um, but you've also got to protect your mental health and well-being. And I am not a great example of that. I've been trying to do a little bit better of, uh, you know, not going to five nights a week and coming in at 7 a.m. And, you know, but uh, those are the two things I would probably do different. So, you know, UB is your graduate school alma mater. But uh, before and you served as a, a regional network volunteer. Right. You are currently serving on the board of trustees of your undergraduate alma mater, right? Hibbert College. What have these volunteer opportunities taught you about you know, being a volunteer and how, how has the, this knowledge helped you in your role leading that program? Yeah, you know, I, I would say from a regional network leader perspective, you know, when you you volunteer for your alma mater, you get to see how things are going, you get to talk to more alumni, and that informs the, the decisions that we're making on a daily basis. It informs changes in structure and process, and so um, grateful to, to have had that. Uh, serving uh, on the Board of Trustees at Hilbert College and the chair of their advancement committee, um, so I serve on their executive committee, has been you know, really enlightening. A small private institution here in Western New York um, that has a niche, um, but like all, all small privates, um, enrollment challenges have been, um, you know, have not been, um, they haven't been immune to those. Um, so it's allowed me to see that big picture of the university. Um, and, uh, you know, we are, we announced, uh, probably a month ago that we are in the process of, uh, purchasing a for-profit institution and, and trying to, kind of create a, a partnership and connection. Um, and I think, you know, what's been so nice to see about the the president of, of Hilbert College, Michael Brophy, um, very entrepreneurial in his approach to revenue streams, right? So can we develop more online education? And that's, mm -hmm. that's a little bit of an interesting concept because, you know, from a true kind of liberal arts purist mm -hmm. perspective, yep. trying to do... Um, some some things that maybe are a little bit outside the box, but allow the institution to continue to thrive um, is really important. So, you know, being part of the, that process of an acquisition has been really informative um, from the legal aspect to the, the Department of Education regulations on how this all happens. Um, I've really appreciated that that time there. As we wrap things up, Thomas, we ask all of our guests one final question, and that is, where do you get your inspiration? This could be very personally. This could be professionally. This Tell our listeners something where they can find some inspiration. Um, I'm going to give you my favorite show on earth. Um, it's every Sunday from 9 until 1030. It's CBS Sunday morning. It's the, if you've never watched it, are you 75 years old? I mean, <laughs> I'm telling you, we, we watch it every so Sunday in our house. It's our. <laughs> it is. I promise you, in that hour and a half, you will learn something new. You will be inspired. You'll probably cry at some heartwarming <laughs> story. It'll give you the kind of fuel and drive you need to get up and, and take on the week. Um, it's just a really wonderful show. And I've been watching it forever. And um, so I would say, watch that. Um, and then I enjoy, you know, when I'm traveling a lot. I try to read while I'm on the, the planes. And there's a new book that I'm reading um, by Luke Russert. Um, Tim Russert, who was the host of Meet the Press, you know, longest running uh, Sunday news show. Um, Tim Russert was a Buffalo guy. You know, he's our, our native son. And so his son wrote a book about um, grieving his father's death. And then he's, tra he's traveling for like two years all around the globe. And he's in very great detail writing about these small little cities or villages or popular destinations. And so I'm kind of creating a travel bucket list mm. based on uh, that book. But it's really, 
it's about kind of being introspective and thoughtful um, in a dealing with something that most of us in in this American culture don't deal with very well, which is grief and death. And so um, it's been a really great book. But CBS Sunday Morning, make sure you watch it. It's a great show. That's a great recommendation. I saw that book highlighted last recently, if not maybe it was yeah. last weekend, and um, uh, a great story to to check out. So good recommendations. But Thomas, it's great to have you on the show. Chris Marshall, enjoy your afternoon at uh, Bowdoin. And we'll yeah, be certainly. back in a month time for another edition of Alumless. So thanks for listening, everybody. Have a great weekend or whenever you're listening to this. Hope it's a great day. And we'll see you again soon. Bye now. Thank you, Thomas. Thanks so much. Thank you. Go Bulls.